0: There is in our culture a myth. A myth is a story that we use to kind of explain events. And one of the myths, I will mention the name to you, and if you've watched movies or grown up, you know, watching TV shows or movies, you will know the name. It is the Kobayashi Maru. Remember that? If you're a Star Trek fan, it was that event that took place where they would deliberately put the cadet into a situation that was a no win situation. It was one that was designed to overwhelm whoever was leading and was the captain in the midst of that um, event. It was a training exercise. Some of you may remember it. This is from way back when in the eighties. Uh, the very first um, Wrath of Khan. Is third class neutronic fuel carrier group of 81, passengers. Mr Sulu, plot an intercept course. May I remind the captain that if a starship enters the Soviet solar... I'm aware of my responsibilities, mister. estimating two minutes to intercept now entering the neutral zone warning we have entered neutral zone we are now in violation of treaty castle Send by transporter room ready to beam survivors aboard captain i've lost their signal alert sensors indicate three klingon cruisers bearing three one six mark four closing fast visual mr sulu get us out of here i'll try captain on torpedoes activated alert evasive action oh. engineering damage report main energizer hit captain engage auxiliary power prepare to return fire shields ah! collapsing captain fire all phasers no power to the weapons captain Activate escape cards. Send out the log boy. All hands abandoned ship. Repeat all hands abandoned ship. All right, okay. Any suggestions, Admiral? Prayer, Mr. Savick. The Klingons don't take prisoners. Now, as I watch that clip, three things strike me. One... How dark it seemed when it was being projected up there. and looks so much better on here. Two, how bad the special effects were. <laughs> uh, that was before CGI. But three, did you catch how it ended? It is the epitome of, early, of earthly wisdom. They had gone through and through that process of confronting this incredible situation. They tried to uh, be kind. They tried their weapons. They tried their intelligence. They tried all of that. And finally, when everything was absolutely desperate, what was the recommendation? Pray. When things have gotten so desperate, when there is no longer any hope of anything else working, then you turn to God. And the idea is, in the midst of the desperation, you might as well try God. There's nothing else left. That is totally opposite of what God's Word says. See, God's word doesn't teach in the midst of desperation, reach out to God. In the midst of desperation, choose to trust God. What scripture teaches is to avoid the desperation. To avoid that place when things seem totally hopeless. Trust God first. First. And know that he is working out his purposes. Even in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances. I loved John's prayer this morning as he was praying. And he talked about the fact that God is there to deliver us. And even when we don't understand. Even when things don't make sense to us. Even when it seems like a Kobayashi Maru. If we trust God, we know that things are not hopeless. Things are not desperate. That God has a purpose and is moving in a direction. One of the things that we're going to see as we come into this section of Isaiah is God is going to say this. Be careful what you put your trust in. Be careful what you believe will give you a sense of security and hope and purpose as you move into the future. Can we please admit that the future is an absolute uncertainty? We have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring. I thought about that Thursday evening as I was studying and getting my outline ready for the message and read about how the Dow Jones had dropped a 1,000 points in two days. No one saw that coming. I think about how our lives can change in a moment, and what we thought would be the hope and purpose and meaning of our lives suddenly changes because of an event that we could not foresee. And the question becomes, in those times... Where is your trust in the midst of that uncertainty? Where is your trust as you move out and and move into the struggles and difficulties of life? What are you trusting in to give you a sense of security, of hope? Our world has some things that it tends to trust in. Sometimes we trust in money. Believing that if we just had a bigger bank account, if we just made more, if we just got that next promotion, then we could be secure and know that things would be all right. We trust in career and finances. We trust in a relationship. That if I just could... Marry this person or if I could just have the perfect family or if I could just, and in in some kind of relational sense, have the idea that if we were just together, all would be well. Sometimes it's in the creation of an ideology that if we could just get this idea across to everyone, things would be so well and things would be so great, people won't listen. Where's your trust? What do you say, because of this, I can always have hope. I can always have a sense of certainty. I can avoid the desperation that often comes in the midst of life. What Isaiah is going to tell us here in Isaiah, and we're we're taking chunks of the book of Isaiah. We began looking at chapter 13, and we're working our way quickly through to chapter 37. And as we were doing that, we've seen a couple of themes that have come up. We saw at first where beginning in chapter 13, Isaiah will have a series of 10 oracles Ten declarations of concern for the nations and for Israel, the nations that surround Israel. And he comes to them and he says, you know, because you've chosen to live in ways that violate my character and my purposes, there are difficulties that are coming upon you because of those choices. Last week, we began in chapter 24 through 27, and we saw that Isaiah talks about the two cities. He talks about the city of man, also called earth, in those passages. And he said those who live in rejection or denial of God's sovereignty and God's holiness and God's purpose, that there is a result to living like that, which is one of destitution and destruction. Or we can live like those in the city of God called the mountain. It says, I will trust in God and know that he is sovereign. Here, beginning in chapter 28 and going through to chapter 33, Isaiah uses a series of woes. And I often think of woe not as slow down horsey. But I often think of woe in this way. Look out. If you keep moving in that direction, difficulty is coming. And Isaiah began by dealing with the nations surrounding Israel, and then he deals with the cosmic principles, and then he deals with now specifically Israel and Judah, and he says to them, Stop putting your trust where you trust. Because it will let you down. And so as we come to these chapters, as we come to Isaiah chapter 28 through 33, the theme is just basically this. When uncertainty prevails, and can we admit that's all of life. All of life is uncertain. All of life is Unsure about what tomorrow will be. And so in the midst of our lives, in the midst of the uncertainty that prevails around us, God says, trust me. And then he tells us why. Because anything else you trust in will just make matters worse. Will just cause more upheaval more struggle. Now, in order to understand that, we need to understand a little bit of the historical background here and a little bit of the dilemma that Israel and Judah find themselves in. During this time, there are three great world powers. If you want... Three superpowers that are involved in ascension and decline. And they're sort of going on and there's an uncertainty. Who's going to be the most powerful? Who should you move towards? Should you trust this nation? Should you trust that nation? Should you expect this one to be there? And so what you see at this time in the history of Israel and Judah is that there were three huge empires that were either ascending, descending, or predominant at the time. The first one that we've been looking at is Assyria. And at the time, Assyria is dominant. This is the capital city of Nineveh, and Assyria is the world power that just seems to be overwhelming everyone. The question becomes should we trust Assyria? Is that the source of our hope and certainty for the future? Now we know historically that though it was dominant at this time within about a century it would fall apart. The second great empire is Egypt. And Egypt seems to get a is moving in sort of fits and starts they they seem like maybe they'll come back and then they just kind of fall apart. And historically we understand that Egypt is in decline It will never be the great empire that it was in the past. And then finally, there's Babylon, Babylonia. And it will soon rise, but not yet. So who do you trust? And the biggest problem is this. Right in the middle, you see that tiny little plot in the middle right there? That's Israel and Judah. And they're uncertain. Every single time one of these empires fights against the other, guess where they pass through? Right through Judah and Israel. When Assyria wants to deal with Egypt, they pass through this area. When Egypt wants to try to, to push back against Assyria, they, trust, they move right through Israel and Judah. Later on, when Babylon wants to deal with Egypt, guess what they have to go through? All of it is through this country. And so constantly they're in turmoil, constantly they're uncertain. And the question becomes who do we trust? Where do we put our faith for the future? Who's going to be there for us in the days to come and as empires rise and empires fall? Where should we place our trust? And God comes and says, I want to make th- something very, very clear. During Ahaz's time, that's the king we looked at several weeks ago, He said, do not trust Assyria. They will just cause you problems. And do you know what happened? Assyria caused them problems. Now, they're in a time of sort of uncertainty. Assyria doesn't seem to be as strong as what they were. Egypt seems to be coming up. Babylon is still kind of out in the the weeds at this time. God comes to his people and he says I want you to understand something don't trust Egypt the only thing you can ultimately trust in is me and so he warns them Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me. Why would you go to Egypt? Egypt's not a place of trust. Egypt won't give you hope for the future. Egypt is not the place where you will find certainty. Assyria won't help. Egypt won't help. Where do you find your help? Where do you find that sense of security and purpose and, 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 and okayness? Verse 15 says this. This is what the sovereign Lord says. The Holy One of Israel, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. See, the question I want to ask is, what's your Egypt? What's your Egypt? We all have them. Those things, maybe because of the way we were raised, maybe because of experiences that we've gone through as an adult, maybe because of many different things, we begin to believe this will bring me safety. This will bring me certainty, money, relationships, power, beauty, all of those kinds of things. God says they're going to fail. Don't trust them. But too often we're just like the people of Israel and Judah. He said these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, they say to those bringing God's word, stop it. We don't want to hear what God has to say because we don't like the message. Give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. If you have to tell us lies, leave this way, get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. God says, don't turn that way. It's not going to bring you the sense of security and hope you long for it to. It will fail you. But too often, we're just like Israel. We're just like Judah. And we say, God, I'll trust this. At least I can see it. At least I can experience it in kind of a physical way in the present. But God says, be careful. It will fail you. So I mean, Austin and I were watching that new show, God Friended Me. Have you seen it? It's the idea that God has a friends list and this one guy is on it and he's supposed to do these things and follow the instructions of God. and It's actually pretty cute. Uh, it's kind of typical cultural spirituality, but it has some good messages. One of the messages, the message comes from God that this person is supposed to do something. And the person that's supposed to do this thing in response to God basically says, God, I'm not going to do it. And all of a sudden, God's symbol changes from a sweet little cloud to a thunder cloud with lightning coming through it. And Austin looked at me. We were watching it together, and he said something very profound. He said, "Pop, pop, is God angry? Is God mad at him?" I don't always have good responses to those questions. But I thought about it for a moment and I said to him, you know what? It's not so much about being God, God being angry. It's about God warning him. The warning is if you choose to move in directions away from me, it's not going to go well. It's not so much that God is angry in the book of Isaiah. It's that God is warning his people. And what he wants us to understand is there's great danger in misplaced trust. Great danger in putting your hope and your sense of security and your sense of all rightness in anything other than God. And as you work your way through the book of Isaiah, you see it, or this section of Isaiah, you see it in a number of different ways. The first thing he tells his people is this, that our our Egypts, whatever it is, whether it's money, whether it's that relationship, whether it's that bank account, whether it's that career, whether it's that education, if I just have that, things will be okay. Things will go well. I can be certain about the future. You see, the problem is, Our Egypts can't know the future and will always eventually mislead us because of insufficient knowledge. God knew Assyria was going to decline, God knew Egypt would never rise. God knew a hundred years from now that Babylon would be in its ascendancy and a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar would become a strong king of Babylonia. Egypt didn't know that. My 401k on Wednesday morning didn't call me up to tell me, Keith, I'm about to take a major hit. didn't do that. God knows what his sovereign purpose is and his instructions are given to us knowing what he is bringing about and to put us in a position to be able to respond well to what God is doing. But there's another problem with our Egypts. Our Egypts are often chosen in desperate foolishness. If you have your Bibles, turn to that Isaiah 30 passage. And there's a tone to what Isaiah is saying here. In Isaiah chapter 30, and beginning there in verse 1, I'll start there, but reading down to verse 3. Isaiah says, Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon them. And then there's a sense of this. Are you really going to Egypt? You're going to go down to Egypt? You're going to go to that place again? The people would have understood their history. They would have remembered some of the other times they went down to Egypt. Remember this guy by the name of Abraham? In the midst of a difficulty and a struggle... Instead of trusting God, he goes down to Egypt. He lies about Sarah being his wife. He causes all kinds of problems and difficulty in his life because he's unwilling to trust God, but instead goes down to Egypt. Remember a little bit later, several hundred years later, when the people are starving and the children of Israel say, let's go down to Egypt. And then, as a result, end up 400 years in captivity. God says, you really going there? Remember in the Exodus as they're making their way through the desert and God delivers them by parting the Red Sea, God delivers them by bringing manna, God delivers them by bringing quail, God delivers them by bringing water into the desert. And what is their complaint? What is their suggestion when things get difficult? Let's go back to Egypt. You know, I'm tired of all this manna. Keith Green in one of his songs talks about they got tired of banana bread, you know, banana stew, whatever. Let's go back to Egypt. God here is really saying, Isaiah is saying, you really are going to go back to Egypt? It's almost a sense of you really are going to do that again? Take a look around you. It's evident that those Human and earthly things that we put our trust in will fail. I can't tell you how many times I've sat counseling somebody in a relationship that is just so destructive in their life. Finally, they get away, but in the midst of the loneliness, in the midst of the uncertainty, in the midst of the fear about the future, they head right back into that relationship that's so destructive. And you want to say, you're really going to do that? Or a situation in which we put our trust in our 401k or in our career and look around you, how many times has that collapsed? And God says, you're really going to trust that? What's your Egypt? You really think that'll come through for you? Our Egypt's lack the power to accomplish their goal. They can't be certain. They're not sovereign. Our God, the God that we serve, the God that we place our trust in, He is loving, He is wise, He knows what He's doing. And he's powerful. He can accomplish what he says he's going to do. Everything else will eventually fail. Isaiah says that in Isaiah 31, verses 1 through 3. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Then in verse 3, but the Egyptians are men and not God. The horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, who will, who, he who helps will stumble, and he who is helped will fall. Both will perish together. Anything you put your trust in other than God is absolutely insufficient. But one last thing that, at least here, Isaiah says about our misplaced trust, and that is, our Egypt's inevitably exact too high a price? Now, the passage where that is explained is one that's a little bit difficult, and we don't have time to take and look at it completely this morning but God comes to his people and his people say to him we're so tired of this do this do that don't do this don't do that we're sick of that you know God you want us to follow you but then you expect certain things of us and so they say to him who is this who is trying to teach who is it he is trying to teach To whom is he explaining his message? The children weaned from their milk to those who taken from the breast. Do you think we're little children? Why do you keep coming and saying, trust God, trust God, trust God? That's such a simplistic thing. We're tired of hearing it. We're tired of hearing about all these rules. Because God comes and says, do and do and do and do and rule on rule and rule on rule. A little here, a little there. God, how dare you expect me to live in this way? And what we fail to realize is it's not God being mean. It's God being wise. He knows how he created you. He knows how he created the earth. He knows his purposes. And he says, live this way because it will bring about what I desire and purpose in your life. Finally, God says, to them, right. Very well then. You won't trust me? You want to trust the foreigners? I'm afraid you'll learn from foreign lips. For you see, God's purpose is to give us a resting place. God's direction is not weary and burdensome. It's purposeful and meaningful. But, when those with foreign lips come... You'll learn, you'll learn that when they say do and do and do and do and rule on rule and rule rule on rule and a little here and a little there, their purpose is not to deliver you and to lead you to wholeness. Their purpose is to take you backwards, to injure you, to snare you, and to capture you. Boy, I've seen this so often. I remember a friend of mine who was very wealthy. He owned a, a big company and he went out and he believed that if he could just surround himself, he could see it in his life, if he could just surround himself with the right amount of possessions and the right kind of gated community and the right kind of house and the right kind of this, all would be fine and all would be okay and his future would be set. And then I saw the price it exacted of him. how much he was worried about all of his possessions. He would sleep with a gun under his pillow, terrified someone was going to break in. He was constantly trying to make more and more and more and more to find that sense of security. And that Egypt, with foreign language, never brought the security he wanted. Anything in which we place our trust, other than God, will fail. It does not know the future. It does not have the power and the strength to accomplish that which we long to have accomplished. It will exact greater and greater and greater demands. You know this in your life. Things that we believe will give us safety will never satisfy. And are never satisfied. You see, God tells us where our trust needs to be. God calls us to put our trust in him alone. that in the midst of the turmoil, I understand God is sovereign. I understand God is wise. I understand God is loving. I understand God is moving in a direction with a purpose. And even though I may not understand what's going on around me, I will trust him. And the way you do that is to do the opposite of what he's warning Israel and Judah about. How do I trust God in the midst of this? What does that look like? Well, the first thing it looks like is this. It's a trust that seeks his guidance through prayer and his word. We read it there in Isaiah chapter 30 and beginning there in verse 1 when he says, Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, who are forming alliances, not by my spirit. They're not even looking to me to say, God... What would you have me do? God, where would you have me go? God, what is the future bringing? God, how should I respond in the midst of this? One of the best ways to see how much I trust God is to see how important prayer and God's word is in my life. When the disaster comes, where's the first place you go? Calling a friend, checking the account, talking to the boss. Where's the first place you go? Say, God, I'll trust you. When we're looking for guidance, where's the first place we go? To the manuals, to the how tos, to the, you know, whatever for dummies. How always say, God, I want to know what your word has to say. Where your spirit will lead me. Secondly, we trust God when we seek to be obedient to his direction. We do what he says. I find it so interesting. I had, a, again, another friend who had a business. And the business wasn't doing so well. And so he made a decision and he said, I am not going to be honest on my taxes. he made the choice to say, I'll disobey what God calls me to do because I don't trust God. It's my business I place my trust. Or being in a relationship with somebody, especially before marriage, who's demanding things and you know they violate God's word. But in order to keep the relationship, I'd rather be committed to this than trusting God. God says, obey me. Even when you don't understand, even though it may make things more difficult, trust me in obedience. God says of these people, they're obstinate. They're rebellious. They won't trust me. Thirdly, It's a trust that actively waits for his deliverance. We don't have time this morning, but one of the things that's so interesting is during this period, do you know what Hezekiah is doing? God said, don't trust Egypt, then he doesn't. But in the process, he's building Hezekiah's tunnel to bring water into Jerusalem because he knows Assyria may any day come in. He builds a wall around Jerusalem. He's active, but he understands ultimately it's first of all in submission to God and secondly, it's ultimately trusting God. My deliverer is not the wall. My deliverer is not the tunnel. These are just things that reflect and, and indicate my willingness to be active while I'm trusting God. I don't know what the future comes. I was talking to somebody. I'm 62. I'm only a few years away from retirement. Hopefully eight. That's my goal. But I'm not going to not do the things that are prudent You know, to be saving for retirement. To be talking to my children about, you know what? I took care of you for 20 years. (laughs) And whether or not we're doing it right, I don't know. But there's that idea of it doesn't mean I'm passive. It's not let go and let God, Whatever that means. But it's trusting that my (laughs) ultimate source of security and hope is not in these things. And if tomorrow my house burns down, if tomorrow my bank account fails, if tomorrow my health goes away, I hope that my first trust, my only trust, will be in God and his provision. And then finally this. The only trust that can sustain us until his final deliverance is our trust in God. I love the way Isaiah ends this. He says, The Lord will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation, and wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Who of you can dwell with the consuming fire that's going on around us? Who of you can dwell with the everlasting burning of the the difficulty of living in in this fallen world? He, this is who it is, he who walks righteously and speaks what is right, who rejects gain from extortion and keeps his hands from accepting bribes, who stops his ears against plots of murder and shuts his eyes against contemplating evil. This is the man, who will dwell on the heights, whose refuge will be the mountain fortress. His bread will be supplied, and water will not fail him. Your eye will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. There is an ultimate deliverance when all will be made right. But where do we find hope in the midst of this struggle? God says two words. Trust me. Trust me. It begins when I place my faith and trust in Christ as my Savior. But that's only the beginning. It grows as I learn to trust him. Each step. Each day. Each moment. trusting. him. Father, thank you for the message of Isaiah. We pray that we would learn to be people who trust you. Father, that we begin by having a faith and trust in you for our salvation, for our eternity. But Father, then also to have a faith and trust in you for every moment, every second of our lives. Father, if there's someone here who has never placed their faith in you and have that certainty of eternity, we would invite them to come and speak to somebody about that. Father, those of us who have begun that walk, help us to learn more and more each day what it means to trust you, to find our hope, our certainty, our security in you. And you will receive the praise and the glory and the honor. Amen.